Welcome to the Content Journeys podcast, a regular discussion about the world of content in business. I'm your host, Alan Porter. From practical use cases to the latest innovations, we'll take a look at where we are today and where we're going tomorrow. In short, the journeys we take with our content. In each episode, we chat to an invited guest from the world of content, practitioners, analysts, industry thought leaders, creative and operational folks, to give a wider perspective as possible on how content impacts the business at every stage of the digital supply chain from idea to customer experience. This episode, we're joined by Rob Hanna, CEO and founder at Precision Content. And I asked Rob to join us on the Content Journeys podcast to chat about his concept of the content circle and content 4.0. And I'm really interested to dive into those. So but before we do dive in, maybe Rob, you can give us a little background about yourself and your involvement in the world of content. Sure. Yeah, well, I've been a technical writer for 30 years uh, now, and I started Precision Content in 2013 with a view to find a way to help organizations be more successful at structured authoring, going beyond just how do we do data better, but how do we write the content better for data and for structure. And so it's really been, you know, my mission to try to help organizations write better for both man and machine for the emerging world of artificial intelligence and other technologies that, you know, I think can really take us to a whole new level. Very cool. I love you. Well, I always have whenever we've spoken. I love your <laughs> forward thinking mindset, Rob. Uh, that's always sparked some interesting conversations. So cool. that's great. Before we do that, sort of get into that in more detail, we have a couple of standard questions we ask each of the guests on because it's always nice to sort of get a different viewpoint on the same question, depending on who the, uh, the interviewee mm-hmm. is or the guest is. So when you hear the term, Actually, you're probably one of the first guests who's done that review and not used the word content, (laughs) which sort of spoils my usual segue into our first question, but I'm going there anyway. So what do you think about when you hear the term content used in a business environment? What does that sort of summon up in your mind? It's uh, funny because it really depends on the day, right? Quite honestly, I can be rather dispirited at the low bar that some organizations accept for content, and it's difficult. but. You know, I would say on the whole, when I think of content, I think opportunity. And I'm not just thinking opportunity for precision content, but opportunity for organizations themselves to improve customer and employee satisfaction, profitability, and innovation through effective use of content. There is so much low-hanging fruit in most organizations that can be reaped by shifting priorities and changing mindsets towards the potential value that content can bring. Cool. You ruined the segue on my first question, but you, you, you did a nice segue for my second question because you talked about the fact that there's a low bar around content in a lot of organizations. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have this phrase, content is king, which has been around forever. Yeah. It's become a cliche. But unfortunately, people throw that out there, but content is still overlooked as a business asset. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it is? What causes that low bar that you just talked about? I think the truth is, literally, content is not an asset. I mean... Speaking about being an asset, I'm an asset to my profession, right? But I'm not an asset on the profession's balance sheet, all right? To bean counters and the people who manage the money and talk about profitability and value, content doesn't factor in. There is no room on the balance sheet for content or data for that matter, right? So the computers you write content on and the machines that you publish content with are assets. The content you create is not. Right. This is important to understand when we say, hey, we got to talk to our executives about treating content as an asset. Well, sorry, it's not. one. 
Should it be? Yes, in a knowledge-based economy, it really should be. It should be what's driving the primary driver of value for most organizations, particularly when you look at companies like Google and LinkedIn and others where all of their value is tied up in goodwill, millions of dollars in goodwill that represents the know-how of that organization. But how do you value the content that makes that organization work? You can't. Now, there are professionals in many of these accounting firms that do look at trying to attribute intrinsic value and some dollar value to content and to information, but it's not something that can be applied across the board. Things like the Federal Accounting Standard Board, FASB, and other accounting organizations, and even courts of law don't recognize content and data as assets that you you can insure against or you can sue for. When 9-11 happened and the Twin Towers fell, inside the World Trade Center, there were large data centers. And when those companies went to their insurance companies to get some money back for the value of the data on the service, the insurance companies refused to reimburse for any of the value of the data, only the value of the machines in which the data was hosted. So, you know, we've got some way to go before we can actually start literally treating content as an asset, when I say an asset as in a balance sheet asset, you know, there are some fundamental, let's say even seismic changes that have to happen in order for that to take place. I think eventually society will have to make this transition. We'll have to be able to measure and quantify and put value behind the actual content that an organization is working with. But until that time, it's different than counting inventory or even components on a factory floor used to create cell phones or other hardware, all of those things are assets and they get treated with a lot more care than our content does because there's a real value on the balance sheet. Very well spoken and very Mm -hmm. true. So you mentioned that we needed a couple of seismic shifts to happen. Have Mm -hmm. you got any idea what those seismic shifts are in your perfect world? Oh, I do. I do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you do. Yes. And, you know, I mean, it's a long conversation, but ultimately... You know, I think we need to get to the point where we can commodify information, all right? So content has to be chunked down, standardized, and measurable in units of information, and not measured against how unique is this information, but what are the processes and standards behind how this information is produced, right? Do we have, similarly to how we manage our money with accredited professionals who are managing the balance sheets and the P&L for an organization and, and treating the handling of that money in those assets with care. We need that same level of treatment for information that has to be done in such a way by enough companies that we can buy, trade, and sell information between companies. So, you know, it's a long road to go to get to the point where we are working with standardized information units. But, you know, I think we're seeing a convergence of, of standards and technologies and everything else that you know, I think it's definitely within my lifetime that we could see something like this. Yeah, it's interesting because if you think about it, there is one area where content is on the balance sheet, and that's the media companies, the mm-hmm. movie companies, the TV companies. Yep. But I think to your point is they don't necessarily report that in a standard way. We've all heard the phrase about Hollywood accounting yes, yes. Um, being sort of a black art. I'm not deep enough into it to know, but I okay. guess that because there isn't a standard way of doing it, it doesn't really seem to translate into other industries that they could be right. applying the same models to right. figure out the value of that, the content they produce. Exactly. So when you have your product, when your product is your information, 
yeah. and your product is your content, then you can ascribe a value to it based on what the market will pay for it. But how much is the market going to pay for your user guide? Or how much is the market going to pay for the release notes for your product? You know, your policies and procedures manual, how much can you sell that for? Right? It has no ascribable value based on what its market value is. Whereas a movie or a record company or a book, they have an ascribable value. Whatever they think they can sell it for, that's the value that that piece of content has. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Which also brings up the thing, like you said, should your support material be free and come with the product or should it be something <laughs> that you charge with? Right. That was an argument and things that I've written about on and off throughout my career as well mm-hmm. as to whether it should be chargeable or not. But mm-hmm. as you said, that could be a whole other conversation. So. Sure. <laughs> so actually, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on here was several years ago, and I can't remember how many years ago it was mm-hmm. now, but it was quite a few years ago. Mm-hmm. You produced a very simple but effective diagram for a presentation that I saw you give, which basically showed the way that we interacted with content over the basically human existence. Millennia, yes. Mm-hmm. And you started off with, you know, Everything was a spoken word, and it was a spoken word for centuries until we sort of moved towards cuneiform and then print and so yeah. forth, and then into the digital world. And the fact that we're transitioning back to the spoken word for a lot of our content. Mm-hmm. You know, I've spoken to a lot of companies, certainly over the last 10 years or so, with the rise of things like Siri and mm-hmm. Alexa and stuff. And like, do you have an audio content strategy? And most companies aren't even thinking that way. Right. So can you talk me through the genesis of that content circle concepts sure. and why you believe it's really important that we understand historical trends around content delivery mm-hmm. as a signpost to where we're going? Sure, sure. This all came out in conversations and early beginnings of the Information 4.0 consortium that Ray Gallen created many years ago. And since then, uh, we've folded up that organization. But There have been many sort of thought leaders getting together and talking about the concept of Information 4.0 or Content 4.0. They were sort of liking it to other 4.0 revolutions, such as Industry 4.0 and Web 4.0 and Technology 4.0, all right? But they they have a much shorter window. You know, Industry 1.0 goes back to the initial Ford assembly lines and talking about how Industry 1.0 introduced so many advances and and moved industry forward and then 2.0 and 3.0. And now with artificial intelligence, we're moving into industry 4.0. And so the time horizon looking at the 1, 2, 3, and 4, even for content, has been more typically envisioned in the last 50 or last 20 years. Joel Bulmer, in fact, created one concept of content 4.0 going from 1 to 4. But it really started really in the modern desktop publishing age and how we organize content. I wanted to take a longer view of that because obviously content's been around for 65,000 years, right? And so, you know, looking at it, how we determine when does the needle move? And really, the basis which I made my model is based on reach of the information, all right? So we go back to the spoken word, which scientists can't agree on when we started speaking. But it was a very, very fundamental advancement in human intelligence, all right? Not just so we could communicate and we could collaborate and we could share and learn and tell stories, but it also introduced the whole notion of abstract thought, right? Without spoken words and without language, abstract thought is impossible. Anybody who doesn't understand language can think of things in 
a concrete world, but thinking of things in an abstract way, conceptually, you know, really requires use of language and some understanding of language. And so this was a, a major advancement in the human species when this happened. We don't know when it happened because nobody wrote it down at the time to say we started talking on, you know, it was only 65,000 years ago when, you know, the first cave paintings were introduced. And I sort of say that's the dawn of content right there, where we started capturing information. We went from a reach of one to one to one to many. All right. So commit it somewhere once and then any number of people can read that cave wall or read your stone tablets or your clay tablets or your papyrus or what have you. So the whole 1.0 to 2.0 saw many, many advances that went from stone to clay to papyrus to parchment to paper. Each step along the way, we didn't really increase the reach of that information, but we improved on the technology to make it more affordable, more portable, more reusable, more permanent, so that you know we really improved on that technology to make it easier to use. And then in the 15th century, with the invention of the Gutenberg press, there was, again, a convergence of technologies, not just the press itself, but improvements in metallurgy for moving type, improvements in ink and paper and everything else that made the Gutenberg press possible. But there was also the Reformation that made it possible. So it wasn't just technology, it was societal friction that really created the Gutenberg press and moved us from one to the many to one to many more, which is the 2.0 movement there. And as we know, the Gutenberg Press changed everything, political systems, beliefs. It democratized information, all right? So now we could put information in the hands of anybody who could learn to read. A seismic shift for human evolution then. And then we get into the 20th century where we're introducing computers, desktop publishing and everything else, and the web And then we're moving into a true democratization where anyone can publish information and everybody did. All right. So that's the 3.0 evolution of moving into digitization, moving into the web. Now, 4.0 is interesting to me. And as you alluded to, it really is the whole coming full circle back to voice. We won't rely as much on written communication. Now, written communication There's a whole lot of theory around how written communication helps us to work out ideas better. But by and large, I think we'll rely less and less on written communication, more back on verbal communication. But this time, communicating with machines, machines can capture that information and give it back to us and can mash it up and transmit it in any number of ways. And we hope to see that with chatbots and with voice user interfaces. But ultimately, this 4.0 revolution, I think, culminates with neural interfaces into information. So you know, how do we share and move information more effectively into the head is, you know, it's still all conversational, right? So transmitting conversational information directly through a neural interface, I think, is the culmination of 4.0. So, you know, I think we're really at the beginning stages of it. But I mean, looking at what Elon Musk is doing with neural interfaces, we can think, hey, yeah, maybe that would be possible. But then we think about the content and say, do you really want Google in your head? I don't think so, right? So a revolution <laughs> needs to happen with how we write, how we chunk, how we create content that we can trust, that we can trust to go directly into our minds, right? So 
there's still a lot of work to go here, but I think this is the, the beginning of a really exciting new chapter. Wow, some really far-reaching and uh, <laughs> future-thinking thoughts there. That's really mm-hmm. cool, Rob. I agree with you about the certainly about that we're on the cusp of a greater use of voice interfaces. I mm-hmm. talk quite a bit about my grandkids. I'm sure they will grow up probably never touching a keyboard as we traditionally understand it. It will all be mm-hmm. voice interface. I mean, you know, even from an early stage, if they see a phone lying around, they will mm-hmm. talk to the phone. That's yeah. how they expect things to work. It's that mm-hmm. or touch screens. They're not expecting to use keyboards at all. So mm-hmm. uh, totally understand that. The neural thing's interesting. Several years ago, I visited an IBM lab where they were playing around with that and they put the mm-hmm. thing on where, you know, they put it on your head and say, all right, think about going forward, think about going backwards, think about going left, think about going right. And then you can drive a car, a radio control mm-hmm. car around mm-hmm. the floor just using your neural network. Yeah. The hardest thing of that was when they actually said, okay, to put it in neutral, don't think about anything. And of course, if somebody says to you, don't think about anything, the first thing you're going to do is think about lots mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> it was an interesting and slightly scary experience to actually be able to drive a connected machine just using your mind. Uh, it was very, yeah. uh, very illuminating. Absolutely. And, yeah, I can see your sort of idea of where we're going, but uh, I agree with you. I think we really mm-hmm. need to think about engineering the content to do that. It has to be structured. It has to be around standards. It has to be formed. Absolutely. It can't be free form. That's absolutely right. And you know, I'm going to give credit to Ray Gallen when he started talking about artificial intelligence and the ethics behind how artificial intelligence works. And of course, when you start talking about artificial intelligence, you end up talking about the moment of singularity, right? The moment where artificial intelligence surpasses the human intelligence. What does human life look like then? You know, this isn't supposed to be some science fiction podcast. I apologize for this, but ultimately I, I see us, our evolution of living with machines and becoming part of the machine, right? Becoming part of a connected world of humans and machines through this. And so the neural interface will be a key part to you know, how we evolve. Don't worry about this being a science fiction podcast. That's fine. <laughs> you have nothing to apologize for. I was actually having this conversation at a slightly more prosaic level recently with a colleague where we were talking about that digital physical interface mm-hmm. for content. And how do we do that? I mean, we were actually just talking about ebooks and reading. Mm-hmm. You know, currently there is the link between your ebook and the audio book that if you're reading it on your tablet, and you're listening it onto the audio, you can sync between the two. So it knows where you've stopped listening to the audio and the ebook picks it up from where you stopped listening to the audio. And then we were like, well, what happens if you had a physical copy of the same book that had some sort of RFID tag on each page? So it knew which page you were on. So you could actually jump across all three platforms and have a continuous seamless experience. Mm-hmm. Now you're talking about thinking about what, well, what happens if it's picking up the text from what's in your mind? as you're Uh reading it, and it knows Mm -hmm. where you are. So, yeah. And I think these are the sort of things in the world of content we need to be thinking about. To go back to your point about right at the beginning about is content an asset? It's not currently. But if we're thinking in terms of things like that, where content is totally driving the experience, then it does become an asset. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 And for it to have these really rich omni-channel types of experiences that you talk about is that it has to have standards, the standards based not just within the organization, but across industries Right. Yeah. That, to make this information be interchangeable. When DITA first came out, right, back in 2001, you know, I think there was a much different vision 
for what DITA would allow. We would allow the sharing of information between organizations because we weren't locked down to a single document type definition. We could create our own vocabularies, but then we could mix it up and share it with our partners and with our OEM organizations. And this information would just simply flow. So we created a technology framework to make that happen, but we never tackled the content itself, how we write that information to make that possible. And that, that's really been at the heart of what's really been driving me for, you know, the last 20 or the last 30 years, you know, trying to move the needle on technical communication. That's actually really interesting. So we, we did a bit of a deep dive a couple of podcasts ago with Patrick Bozek mm-hmm. around Ditter. So if you want to know what DITA stands for and that, you go back and listen to that podcast. We had a bit of a deep dive there. But what you just said about actually how you write the content is very true because that's one of the things I find when I'm out talking to people about structured content. People who actually create the content, that's one of the first things they say is, how is this going to impact my job? How is this going to impact the way that I create the content? And there is best practices around creating reusable structured content that we really need to educate people around and get them thinking in terms of what they're creating could be delivered on any platform through any channel. We don't control that anymore. Right. So what are the sort of challenges that you meet trying to get that message across? Well, I'm going to go back to sort of the sort of whole evolution of this structured authoring, what we spoke about did it for a moment, but I was on the standards body there and we were looking to expand this vocabulary beyond just tech pubs to the enterprise. And so I was part of a subcommittee called the Enterprise Document Subcommittee. So going out and looking for models of information that go beyond product support and product help to any part of the organization, the human resources part of the organization or the, the other business functions within the organization, what would a fuller content model look like and what would it be based on? How would we go about deciding how what a, a unit of information or what a chunk of information was? Trying to look to science to help us understand how our brains work with information. I discovered some very, very fascinating things about how our brains work with information in very different ways. And that if we could figure out that and apply more research and science behind this, that we could get closer to a a standard that would be robust enough that we could employ it across industries and across different industry verticals. That's what we've attempted to do with our precision content writing methods, which are really based off of information mapping practices that were developed back in the 60s by Robert Horn in Massachusetts, where he looked to break information up into different types of information. Some will argue it is or is not part of the basis of DITA, or Darwin Information Typing Architecture. These, these concepts of information types of concept, task, and reference. But understanding that it really works into the way our brains are, more particularly the way our different types of memory add context, comprehension to information. You know, if we can apply science to structured content, neuroscience and learning theory to how we write that content, then we, I think, have a chance at being able to create something a standard that can work across industries. Cool. Again, this is something I talk about quite a lot. Every part of the organization creates content. Hmm? It doesn't matter what size of company you are or what your function is, everybody hmm. creates content. And if we can do it in a way, to use a phrase that you used earlier, which is I really like, if we can democratize hmm. the content and democratize the access to the content, 
we can become more efficient. We can improve the customer experience. We can improve the employee experience because we're not constantly recreating the same thing or we're not spending half our time searching for it. And the customer is getting a consistent experience irrespective of which function in the organization they're they're talking to because they're getting the same answers to the same questions rather than different ones and so forth. So very cool. So I have one final question for you. As a final thought, what would you consider that the one area that our listeners could focus on right now to improve the value of their content? You know, I, I think there's still arguably people out there that don't understand the value of structured content. And I don't, again, I don't want to go back to data. It's not about data. It's about, you know, thinking differently about how we chunk and organize our information, right? And so, you know, if you're a technical writer or you work with technical content, and you don't know a lot about structured authoring, you think it doesn't apply to you, I suggest that there's some really good reading and research to be done, but to dig in and learn more about structured authoring. You know, if you are a writer and you've been working in structure, but you don't really understand the difference between, well, I used to do this in FrameMaker, and now I'm doing it in this other tool. Structured writing is not about the tools you use. It's about how you think and organize your information. All right, structured writing was coined back in the 60s by Robert Horn before we were using any sort of desktop publishing software. In fact, if you go out to Google Scholar and you look up Robert Horn, you can find some of his earlier information map works are done on a typewriter. But you can see that he's doing all the indenting and, and underlining and really structuring that content for better usability. And so it really isn't about the tools or even the technology framework we're using. It's about thinking about information differently. So I'd say dig in, learn about structured authoring, learn about why it's important. There's books that have been published over the last 20 years that provide some really good reference to being able to understand what structured content is and why it's important. I mentioned information mapping before, and information mapping offers public classes that give some idea into structured authoring. We offer corporate classes for corporations and structured authoring, but there's so much to learn. We, we really need to dig in and make structured authoring work. Cool. I agree 100%. But if you're in the marketing world, you may be calling it atomic content or something mm-hmm. like that. But it's the same thing. Yeah. It is all about <laughs> reusable yeah. structured content. So it uh, is. completely agree. So thank you, Robert. It's been a fascinating conversation as always. And like I say, I love your uh, forward thinking and mm-hmm. uh, not just your forward thinking, your, your ability to put it in a historical context and actually extrapolate where we're going from where we've been. Really love that. So thank you. Where can our listeners find you online if they'd like to learn more? Precisioncontent.com. We have a rather large collection of papers and presentations, recorded webinars and the like. If you want to learn more about precision content writing methodology or, you know, I spoke earlier about how our brains work with information, all of that's in recorded webinars on our website. You can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm the single sorcerer. On LinkedIn, I just looked me up as Rob Hanna. I'd like to get out to all of the TechCom conferences. I'll be at Labicon in October this year. So we're sponsoring. We'll have a booth there. So please, if you want to talk shop, I'd love to talk to you. Uh, drop by or send me an email. Well, that's cool. I will be at Labicon too. So uh, mm-hmm. it will be uh, good to catch up with you in person. It's been a few years, I think. It's great. Oh, no, we, we, yeah, yeah, we were, Chicago. We made Chicago. Chicago in Chicago, didn't we? Yeah. Exactly. Yes, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, it will be great to catch up with you again in, in October yeah. in New Orleans. Uh, this is great, Alan. Thank you. You know, you've really hit all my hot buttons. So I, I think I came out of more of a geek today than I usually do in a typical conversation. But <laughs> hey, uh, if, if you this. and I can't geek out about content, Rob, who can? Fredo. All right. Wonderful. Well, it was good to talk to you again, Rob. And uh, I will see you in a couple of months. And uh, I appreciate you spending the time with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Content Journeys. Got a question or a comment? You can find us on Twitter at Nuxio or at Highland. Just use the hashtag Content Journeys. If you've enjoyed what you heard today, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to Content Journeys on your favorite podcast platform. And if you could leave a rating or a review too, that would be great. Again, a special thanks to Rob Hanna for joining us today. And thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm your host, Alan Porter. Stay well, stay safe, produce good content and enjoy your journey. Content Journeys uses the copyright-free track of Special Thanks by Roa and is produced by Jared Albrick. You can reach out to Jared at jared.albrick at hotmail.com. That's J-A-R-R-O-D dot A-L-B-E-R-I-C-H. Thank you.